0: Welcome to Keeping It Israel, brought to you by First Century Foundations. This weekly podcast explores how your Christian faith connects to Israel and why standing with Israel matters. Now, here's your host, Executive Director of First Century Foundations, Jeff
1: Feuders. Well, welcome to the podcast today, Keeping It Israel. My name is Jeff Feuders. I'm the host. And uh, today our guest is once again, Danny the Digger Herman. Danny, welcome back.
0: Uh, Thank you. Uh, Honored to be aboard and uh, looking forward to uh, continue our discussion about the tangible aspects of the New
1: Testament, right? Exactly, exactly. And now I want to just say here, if you're tuning in today and you didn't hear the podcast last week, you're probably going to want to go back and listen to that one, Uh, if not first Uh, at least uh, after you listen to today's podcast because we counted down from 10 uh, we're we're doing the top 10 archaeological finds that connect to to jesus and to the new testament and uh, it's just been fascinating danny thanks for uh for sharing with us today and and last week as well but i want to encourage everybody to get all of these so make sure that you uh that you do that Now, we're going to jump back into the discussion. We were uh, down to number six. Last week, we we talked at the end about the the Jesus boat, uh, the boat of Galilee. And today, we're going to jump in at number five. So Danny, just kind of take us again, continue us on the journey. Where are we going with number five?
0: Well, first of all, looking at the list, it also turns out that most of the first five topics were geographically up north. And now we are following Jesus also in his journey to Jerusalem. And imagine, Jeff, that route that he's taking from Capernaum through Beth Shean, passing by Jericho, turning right, going up the mountains, and seeing Jerusalem from the top of Mount of Olives. You know, also today it's a breathtaking panorama, but imagine then when the temple stood there in full glory. And then the first significant story where a significant archaeological discovery was made is recorded, I believe, in John chapter 9. Jesus uh, meeting a blind person by the pool of Siloam and healing him. Now, until 2004, we believe that the pool of Siloam, which by the way, Siloam means shiloach, means to be sent. It was at a specific spot south of the Gihon Spring where the water was sent from, through an underground tunnel. I believe that when we filmed in 2019, we also filmed uh, at that uh, tunnel. And uh, until 2004, we believed, I mean, all the scholars and visitors and preachers, that it's at the end of that tunnel. But then, due to some flood that required cleaning up an area south of it, a team from the Israel Antiquities Authority, led by Eli Shukun, a friend of mine who studied the Gever Archaeology, he found the real Pool of Siloam, meaning he found another pool, but with clear uh, shape and artifacts dating material that date to the first century. So only 2004, we found the real Pool of Siloam. And that's ma- the place where most likely this event took place.
1: OK, so help me out here. Are you telling me that the pool that I've been to numerous times is is probably not actually the Pool of Siloam?
0: Well, depends which one you went to, but until 2004, there was a, a little I don't know how to say it in English. It was uh, uh, on a lower level, you had to go down a few stairs, and it was, I don't know, 2 meters wide, 10 meters long. There were some parts of pillars in the water, and archaeologists in the 19th century found a Byzantine church built over it, meaning already in the Byzantine period, Christians believed that that's the Pool of Siloam but eli shukrin in 2004 found i don't know 100 meters south of that site a bit less 50 meters another pool completely covered up with with mud and debris that is really that is the real place it originally had a four wide flight of steps leading to the center but unfortunately we could discover only the corner because the rest of it is private property but everything in the shape and in the dating material indicates that's the real pool of Siloam. And it also demonstrated what uh, the pool of Siloam's main function was. You have to understand that every Jew that, that wants to express his devotion to God back then would do so by a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and offering an animal sacrifice at the temple. But before you get there, you must be purified. Jews, in general, were obsessed with purification. On the first podcast, we spoke about the people of the Dead Sea Scrolls and how many purification facilities they had in Qumran in their small site. Uh, Before you go up to the temple, you must be pure as well. Uh, Now, you could potentially purify in Toronto if you wish, but most likely on the way through Europe, you will pass by a cemetery or, God forbid, touch a woman in her period or a person who has been in a cemetery, you know, so to be sure that you are pure, ju- you do it just before you enter. And there were several. Archaeologically, we found several purifying facilities around the Temple Mount, but the main one, the biggest, that was fed by the Gihon spring water was that pool of Siloan, and that's why it was so big and had a wide flight of steps. So what I think is that the context of the story of Jesus healing the blind men is that both of them were going there in order to purify, as they both wanted to go up to the Temple Mount. Now, there's an interesting question if blind people or uh, impaired people in any way could actually enter the Temple. Uh, there's not uh, a clear reference to this in the, in the Jewish halachic sources. But they were both there. And I believe Jesus definitely was there in order to purify. So he would be allowed into the Temple Mount.
1: Mm. So so really, if it was that a blind person couldn't go into the temple, then uh, Jesus, by healing him, was doing maybe one thing more than just healing his eyesight. He was actually giving him access, giving him uh, the ability to be able to purify himself and actually go into uh, where the, the presence of God uh, was. Um, yeah, I think totally. that's, that's amazing. Yeah, that, that's really is an interesting, interesting thought. Now, uh, they also found from the pool, the, the roadway, the, uh, the yes. ascent to the temple, correct? Yes,
0: uh, the the proof that this was probably a a ritual cleansing before going up to the Temple, and then uh, you will remain pure till you enter, is the fact that we not only found the real Pool of Siloam, but we also uncovered, and are still uncovering, a very wide strept avenue connecting the Pool of Siloam with the entrance to the Temple Mount, and the size of it and the scale and the grandeur of it indicates how many people walked up and down that specific stepped street, but it was also separated from the rest of the city, so it's like a pure path leading up to the uh, Temple Mount. And uh, they're still working on it. Uh, In the first stage, they found the sewer beneath it. It was also an important uh, way to drain the, the, the city's filth out of the city. But it's so big yeah. that people can walk through it. I've walked through it numerous of times. And also there they made interesting discoveries, not relating directly to the New Testament, but it proves how many fascinating finds can be made a, at these uh, sites. So both the Pool of Siloam and the Step Street are amazing illustrations of another uh, biblical narrative First of all, John chapter nine, the the healing of the blind, but also the general path. That Jesus may have walked on that specific step street because he too was in the pool of Siloam and
1: he too was later in the temple. No question, no question. I'm sure I'm, I'm convinced that he would have walked on that street. And um, it's interesting. There are so many references in, in the Tanakh uh, you know, about going up to Jerusalem or up to the temple. And this uh, this picture, this visual of a, of a roadway that ascends from the the ritual cleansing pool of Siloam up to the temple is just a, it's just a vivid and phenomenal thing. Now, you, you referenced a discovery made in the sewer. Um, talk a little bit more about that. That was that was a, a small little uh, tiny little pomegranate bell. Ah, the Um, pomegranate
0: bell. Well, they made a few discoveries. First of all, they found uh, skeletal remains. There were Jewish rebels hiding in those passages later Mm -hmm. on. Uh, We know from Josephus that decades after the time of Jesus, when the Jews rebelled against the Romans, and it was a complete failure, some of them escaped through those tunnels. And uh, we found pots, cooking pots, that were probably with food for those refugees. And one very uh, interesting item is a small pomegranate-shaped golden bell. Now, from the Mishnah, we know that the high priest had on his garments, among others, pomegranate-shaped golden bells. Are you suggesting that the high priest himself may have escaped through that tunnel? (laughs) I mean, this is what, it's again my friend Eli Shukran who discovered it, this is how it was presented not the fact yeah. not proof but a possibility that
1: maybe even the high priests uh, have used that escape tunnel so many possibilities when you think about uh, you know what may have happened uh, back in those days uh, you know we're focusing here on the pool of salome and how it connects to jesus and to the miracle he did with the blind man and and um also the fact that that i believe jesus would have um as a as a jewish person a good jewish person he would have cleansed himself purified himself before going up to the temple as anyone would have and so uh, he would have used the pool very very likely and used the steps going up to the temple as well and uh, the southern the the southern steps that uh, you know we often visit just outside the the uh, old city walls there uh, would have been kind of the the Ending of that roadway, right?
0: Yes, and that was my choice yes. also for number four, because besides uh, purifying yourself, uh, you had to do two more things before you enter the Temple Mount. You had to make sure that you have with you the sacrifice, and again you right. can bring your sacrifice with you all the way from Toronto, but it you, you might have to pay, you know, an extra fee on the flight or the sale <laughs> or whatever method of transportation was back then, it's much easier to just buy the pigeon next to the uh, uh, market uh, in Jerusalem, okay? And the other thing you had to do is make sure you have the right kind of currency to pay the temple tax, which is also mentioned several times in the New Testament, okay? It was a type of coin that you had to pay every Jewish male above the age of 25 but your uh, American or Canadian dollars or European Euros are useless here. It must be a specific currency and I actually prepared, let's see if the camera shows it. Okay, okay. I have a copy here of that type of coin. It was a coin that was minted in Tyre, in Tyre the city of Tyre in Lebanon of today and that was the only currency accepted by the priests in Jerusalem. Uh, and besides purifying, we hear of Jesus also around the Temple Mount getting upset at the people that provide that service, of the pigeons and the, um, and the, and the type of coin, the, the money changers. What does he do, Jeff? He, he turns their tables upside down. I believe that that happened at the end of that stepped street next to the sovereign entry to the Temple Mount. But why are you so upset? Because we know from other sources, what Jesus also declares, they are abusing the opportunity. They are uh, inflating the prices. Okay, The exchange rate is highly inflated to get that right coin uh, uh, at, at that specific place. And the cost of the pigeon at that place, according to the Mishnah, was 50 times higher than anywhere else. And Jesus says, this is wrong. You shouldn't be making a profit from from following God, from worshiping God. And he does a bold act. Okay, Turning the tables is a very violent act. And that, I believe, is the first time that he got the priest's attention and maybe even anger, because the priests were the ones that were running the show. And they didn't like a a rebel saying that they should not be making profit out of uh, worshiping God. There was a reason that the priest didn't like him and eventually they were the one to catch him at the Garden of Gethsemane. This is where the seeds were planted by expressing his anger at their corruption and demonstrating wow. it physically.
1: That's amazing. Uh, great, great connection, you know, from, from this act until uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. I love you connecting those two things. And uh, it really it really does follow the, the logic. The
0: text doesn't say where he turned the tables upside down. It just says it in the context of going up to the temple. And I wish right. uh, it would also be on the top of the list. I wish I could excavate the temple area itself and discuss it. But the Temple Mount, 30 years after the time of Jesus, was completely demolished by the Romans and centuries later was rebranded by the Muslims as a holy Muslim place. So today, as you know, it's all Muslimized, and there's a golden domed structure there sacred to the Muslims, and they do not, (laughs) to say the least, cooperate with archaeological investigation on the Temple Mount. However, south of the Temple Mount, you have the Southern World Archaeological Park, which was intensively excavated in the 1970s, and among others, we found quite a few public areas where you could argue this is where maybe the money changes and the dove sailors used to stand.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so let me read the text from Mark 11, just to get some further insight here. But it says in verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts. So, so he makes a reference to the temple courts. Um, and you can maybe kind of explain that in a minute. And began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And so uh, the, the references to the courts of the temple, does this line up with the top of the steps here?
0: There's a big scholarly debate on what temple courts exactly mean. The temple itself stood in the middle of a giant plaza. It was about the size right. of 20 soccer fields. But scholars debate if these areas uh, were used for trade or just for uh, congregation. Uh, we know that the southern end was a big area that Josephus calls the Royal Basilica, or the Royal Stoa. And we don't know what that exactly means, but Josephus, on his behalf, never mentions any commercial activity taking place on the temple plaza. So maybe the temple courts means the public zones that are around it, and unfortunately, due to the political situation today, we could only excavate the southern part of the Temple Mount, but we found ample of evidence that relates to the first century, including public zones that could be equated we even found entry to shops, okay? The shops where right. dub sellers and uh, and money changes could have uh, stood.
1: So here's another question: now, How are archaeologists sure? And and this is going to sound maybe a little ridiculous, but I want to ask it because I I want you to explain um, some of the climate in which uh, this. This kind of debate is happening. How are archaeologists sure that there ever was a temple in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus?
0: Uh, wow! We have well, we have the New Testament. Okay, yeah, recording it. We have a very detailed account who tells us the dimensions and all the components of that temple. It's a first-century Jewish historian called Joseph ben Matityahu. He was later given a Latinized name called Flavius Josephus. We have uh, Roman historians such as Plinius. Pliny the Elder tells us that Jerusalem was by far the most spectacular city in the Eastern Roman Empire, and it does also indicate the temple. We have the Jewish Mishnah, which records memories of the temple, very detailed memories of its dimensions and components. And we have archaeology. Not from the temple itself. As I said, sadly, only in the 19th century, some surveys were conducted by British. And then the Muslims since then have not allowed any proper archaeological work there. But uh, in 1999, they did dump 400 truckloads from the Temple Mount in the Kidron Valley. And to this day, uh, a friend of mine is leading a project of sifting through that debris. And the artifacts are no longer in context, but there's definitely also first century items in it. But the Southern Wall Archaeological Park has found such clear testimony to a public gathering area before going up to the Temple Mount, including more ritual baths, which were a necessity before you go up to the Temple Mount. And we found the gates, we found decorated stones. The evidence is so clear. There's, you really cannot deny the existence of the temple after seeing all of this evidence.
1: It's overwhelming, and I, you know, we ask that question to be a little bit of a devil's advocate because, you know, it's unbelievable for us to try and imagine that UNESCO uh, would want to deny this strong connection to the Jewish people—that uh, is the the Temple Mount—and you know, I get a little bit wild every time I think about all of these all of these things that have come out of. Uh, many of these discussions and you know it's uh, it's just an amazing thing to be able to to go there to stand uh, that part of the park where you can stand by the the corner and see where the the fall the stones are still where they fell from uh, you know from the from the arch it's uh, it's an incredible incredible experience and it boggles my mind to think that anyone would try to say that uh, the Jews have no, no connection to this place. I just, I just can't imagine. I just can't imagine. Well, let me just briefly
0: say, not trying to be too political, that UNESCO is a political body, uh, and its bias is coming from the Arab world because from an Arab or Muslim point of view, the Temple Mount is only to be linked to Muhammad's ascension up to the heavens to get the prayers of Islam. Uh, if they acknowledge the fact that there was a Jewish temple, then they have to acknowledge some Jewish whites there. So what do you do? You just ignore the facts. Okay? Hmm. When 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 Israel tried pulling this peace accord with Arafat and they went all the way to Clinton. Uh, Arafat denied the Jewish past on the Temple Mount in front of Rabin and in front of Clinton and and Clinton tells him, but listen, I as a Christian am telling you there was a temple there and Arafat still denied it because there's there's an agenda. There's a a set of beliefs of other ethnicities and other religions and acknowledging the Jewish past is is a big problem for them. So you just deny Mm -hmm. the facts. That's all I can say.
1: Well, there's one of the stones that fell in that place that I was describing to you a moment ago that actually had an inscription on it. You remember, uh, can you tell our listeners what the inscription says and why it's so significant and so important? We found a
0: few inscriptions, but the one you're uh, implying uh, was found right next to the very corner of the Temple Mount, right? The southern and western corner. And Josephus tells us that when the temple stood, uh, the priest would go to the corners of the temple before uh, Shabbat, before a holiday, and would announce it by blowing the trumpets. And that inscription, again, coming from the corner, says that this is a space that belongs to the trumpeting department. A Hebrew inscription, okay? Lebet mm-hmm. Belonging to the trumpeting department for announcement. What could be more solid proof and confirmation of what the historical sources are telling us about the Jewish temple being there? Exactly. I mean, it's, it's really ridiculous to try and disconnect that site from the Jewish temple.
1: Amazing. And I am in total agreement with you. And, you know, um, again, if you come to Israel with us, we will go to the southern steps and we will visit the the archaeological park and you'll see some of these sites one of the most significant things that we do is is read together uh, from the text about jesus going up to the temple out on the steps and and it really is kind of surreal to to be there and to to know with with almost certainty Uh, that that Jesus and his disciples would have traversed those stones, those steps to to get to the temple. Uh, That to me is just uh, so amazing. And um, and then, of course, also to uh, to understand that uh, they would have heard the trumpet that you're talking about, that they would have they would have heard that announcement happening every Shabbat, and uh, I just think that's incredible. Sure, and and by the way, when you
0: say come to Israel to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, at that mm-hmm. site you're really literally walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Yes. Absolutely.
1: absolutely, absolutely, uh, and it's not on not on my list of things to discuss here, but also the the many many mikvahs that they found uh in that area right outside the steps as well are just a a remarkable remarkable thing to see
0: yeah everyone before going up had to be pure and the pool of siloam was probably for the mass some sort of a public uh, service but those uh smaller ones were maybe more of a private maybe for payment with the water being warmed up or something but uh, the okay. fact that there's so many out there is another proof that there was a Jewish temple, and this is where you would pre- purify before going up, definitely.
1: Absolutely, great. Well, that's awesome. Now, so so what about number three? What's what's the next one we're going to uh, cover here?
0: Well, it, it gets so tight up on the top uh, <laughs> the top of the list that I actually uh, added two two items: artifacts. Now we're not discussing sites anymore. But they both okay. relate to the same event, and, and the event is following Jesus getting the priests set, And after the Last Supper, he goes and uh, at the Garden of Gethsemane, they decide to spend the night after the Seder. Uh, but the priests are after him. They capture him. They interrogate him. The, the head of the interrogation of the, is the high priest. His name is given. His name is Caiaphas. And then the next day, they hand them over for a trial. Uh, They don't have the authority to trial a a person in the Roman province, but the Roman uh, governor does. And the Roman governor at the time is Pontius Pilatus, or Pontius Pilate. And guess what? Archaeology actually discovered a few artifacts that relate directly to those characters. First of all, in the 1970s, we found an inscription in the city of Caesarea, a city that was built by King Herod as a big city port, and we have found there an inscription, a dedication to a new temple, Tiberium, a temple honoring Tiberius that was built by Us Pilatus. The the beginning is missing, but it's quite obviously Pontius Pilatus. Okay, so here is this governor ruling a a province in the eastern end of the Roman Empire for only ten years, and no one would know or care about him if he wouldn't be the judge of Jesus, Uh, and he Hmm. didn't build much, he didn't mint, uh, actually he did mint a few small coins, but he wasn't like a king. He was just a ten-year governor, but we did manage to find an inscription bearing his name, and recently, we also found a ring bearing his name in the site of Herodium, Jeff. Have you ever been to Herodium?
1: I have, it's phenomenal. As a matter of fact, when we went in, nobody else was there. And uh, we, we had a really unique tour of the place, but it's, uh, it's just a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, structure. And um, wow, so much of it that was just so mind boggling.
0: And then, in the 1990s, another stunning discovery is made in Jerusalem, just south of the Old City, when uh, they're building a new road and uh, a burial cave is uncovered. And an inspector from the Israel antiquities, uh, Tzvi Greenhut, is called into the scene, and he finds in that burial cave uh, several small bone boxes. The Jews at that time had a weird habit of Burying the dead and a year later collecting just the bones into small bone boxes. It's called an ossuary. Uh Okay? And one ossuary, now on prime display at the Israel Museum, was very highly decorated. And on its narrow side, there was a graffiti saying that this is indicating that this specific bone box is of Yehosef Bar Kaifa meaning Joseph of the Caiaphas family. So the New Testament just gives us his last name, his family name. But that's the judge, of, not the judge, the interrogator of Jesus. Josephus tells us that it was Yoseph Bar-Kaifa, which was the high priest of, at the time, Joseph of the Caiaphas family. And out of the blue, wow. just by accident, because of building a road, we actually find truly the physical remains there, was an, there were remains of an elder in his 60s, a male elder in his 60s that were found inside that bone box, undoubtedly the remains of the high priest that interrogated Jesus.
1: Incredible. Now, so let me, read, let me read the text from Matthew 26 and verse 57. It talks about those who had arrested Jesus, took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled but Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. And the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus, so that they could put him to death. And it's uh, it's just amazing to make that connection. Now, so here's a question: What was what was the temple leadership like at the time of Jesus? Can you comment? Was there was there a problem with corruption? Uh, had the priesthood become politicized in any way in in your kidding uh, <laughs> me? Of course,
0: <laughs> of course. Power corrupts, and uh-huh. also in religion, we know that uh, from the time of the Maccabees, that the high priest uh, was in charge of the temple tax coin. That was the big money. Uh, The the Hashmonean kings at some point just took that title. They were both king and high priest, so they could be in charge of all that, uh, collecting those temple taxes. And later, under Roman control, it would be a specific uh, family of high priests, which would be either uh, appointed by the Herodian family or by the Roman governors. And there's no doubt that Pontius Pilatus and Caiaphas had a dialogue. He was getting a cut out of the money that they were uh, collecting. Hmm. Um, and the, the fact that we find, you know, an inscription of his own bone box. That's amazing, Jim. That's really amazing. absolutely
1: amazing. So, so this solid, now, solid connection to Caiaphas. Then you know later in this story, we read about Jesus standing before the governor, before Pilate and him asking him, are, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you have said so. And, and when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. The Bible says, then Pilate asked him, don't you hear this testimony that they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor, and you know, we, we read the rest of the story. Uh, Pilate's wife has a dream, tells him don't have anything to do with this Jesus person. Uh, I, I think it's a bad idea. And then Pilate goes out and in front of all the people, he he washes his hands and says, you know, I, I find I find no fault in this man. I I, I just it's like he's saying, I, I can't I can't really condemn him, but in the end. Yeah. Of course, he bows to the, the, the will of Caiaphas and the will of the people and uh, sentences Jesus to death. This seems to me like it was a...
0: Not the people. This is important for me to clarify. Not the people. It was the high priest and the Sanhedrin which really didn't like it. Now, you're right the that when he, asked the, uh, when he washes in hand, he, he asks the public... Right? right? That's what Luke says. I think this was a recruited public by the high priest.
1: An angry excited mob, you the An mob. Yeah. Angry
0: mob, but but brought there by the high priests, they were maybe even paid, like dictators bring, you know, protesters to, to support them in rallies. I think that the public actually liked him. He was a rebel, he was standing up against all of this corruption. Yeah, but definitely the authorities didn't like
1: him. Yeah, no, I would, I would, and I'm totally, not the only one saying it. I would actually totally agree with with your assessment of that. I think it was a a mob that was purposely incited by the uh, you know yeah. by the religious leaders.
0: And speaking about uh, bone boxes, uh, the 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 bone box of Caiaphas is truly a sensation. But maybe there's even a bigger sensation, and that's on my number two. Okay, okay. This discovery or this publication was announced uh, also around the turn of the 21st century. It was a rather simple bone box, not highly ornate, unlike the Caiaphas bone box, but it did say on it um, Yaakov Bar Yosef Ahui de Yeshua. Okay, the language is Aramaic. Baal is Aramaic, not Hebrew. In Hebrew, you say Ben, son of. Hmm. Um, Yaakov Bar Yosef means uh, in English James, son of Joseph. And James, Joseph, um, Matitya, Yehuda, these are all very common names. Jews at that time were not very creative, they kept giving their children very similar names. In fact, Josephus mentions I believe about 30 people with the name Jesus besides the famous Jesus there are a lot 30 or somewhat more people in his time by the same name right but but the person boasts that he is the son of Joseph and the brother of Jesus okay usually uh, in an official statement on a bone box you say uh, you are they didn't have family names so you just were identified as X son of Y. And this guy is saying, I am X son of Y and brother of Z. Why would you want to say you are brother of Z? Because Z is maybe an important person. Now let's read the names again. James, Mm -hmm. son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. They're all common names, but that specific combination is very, very, very interesting. And when it was published, it was... Uh, speculated again. Remember what I said in the previous podcast that you cannot rule out,
1: yeah,
0: the possibility that this is the very brother of Jesus, James, who lived in Jerusalem, led the community, died in the 60s. So he was still brought for proper burial in the custom of the time. Amazing. And if this and if this bone box is authentic, that is sensational. That is sensational. That's a, a, a family member of Jesus, Jeff. I know. It's almost like reaching Jesus himself. But where's the problem? <laughs> it's not. It was not found in proper excavations. It was found. Uh, it was published out of the private collection of Oded Golan, an Israeli, an antiquity collector, an engineer, uh, and then he claimed that he has had it for ages, but only recently. Uh, he had some Christian scholar looking at it and and saying, hey, this could be the brother of Jesus. Like, I didn't even know what it was. uh, This ended up, Jeff, as being the trial of the century in in biblical archaeology. It went on for 10 years when the uh, state of Israel accused him of a clever forgery. By the way, it it went to Toronto. Okay. It traveled on a show in Toronto.
1: Now, it, now I'm that, making that connection. I believe it, it was at the uh, Royal Ontario Museum, as a matter of fact, yeah. Indeed.
0: And uh, then it also broke underway, and he claimed a lot of money from the insurance, and that was also supposedly part of the scheme, just to make a lot of money from the insurance. But is it real or not? And after 10 years of trial here in the Israeli court, They, uh, I hope I'm using the right term, evicted him. I mean, they found him not guilty. They couldn't prove forensically that he forged it. Now, it doesn't mean that it's authentic. It just says that the Israeli court could not find proof for forging the ossuary. And I followed that case for a long time. And I'm of the same opinion. You cannot prove that it's a forgery. And if you cannot prove that it's a forger, you cannot rule out the possibility that it's genuine. Now, how did Odette Golan obtain it, and when did he really get it? It's an interesting question, but if it's real, Jeff, this bone box is the bone box of the brother of Jesus. That is mind-boggling.
1: That would be. And another
0: mind-boggling discovery that I put in the same line as number two is another bone box found in proper excavations in 1968, after the Six-Day War, when Israel built up the northern part of Jerusalem in an area called the French Hill, and they found another rather plain bone box. Um, On its side it mentioned the name of the deceased. His name was Yehohanan son of Chagakol, John son of Chagakol. You never heard of him, nor did I. We know nothing about that person. Why was its discovery so important? Because in the bones inside the bone box among others they found the heel bone pierced by a metal nail yes and when they examined it under microscope they found traces of wood attached to that nail that poor guy johannand jeff ended his life on the cross and this jeff is the only the first and the only time ever to this day that we ever found evidence of crucifixion, of Roman crucifixion. Not that Jesus was given a special treatment. You know, a lot of slaves were crucified at the end of the Spartacus Revolt. A lot of Jews were crucified when the Romans uh, came to suppress the Jewish rebellion. Two thieves were crucified next to Jesus himself, okay? Crucifixion was not a special uh, death punishment but they probably later pulled the nails out because metal was very precious. Mm. And for some reason, this one specific nail was not pulled out, maybe because it was bent. It was bent and maybe they didn't want to uh, de, de fact what's the word, to vandalize the body any further. So the one nail they left when they buried him, and we found that 2,000 years later, and it happens to be, in the same city and in the same time frame where Jesus was crucified.
1: Amazing. So I
0: find that discovery also to be amazing. And that's also on prime display at the Israel Museum to this day.
1: I've seen it. It's amazing. Okay. So, so two things. Um, first of all, the, the, the bone box is consistent with uh, how Jewish burial tradition would have happened in the first century, correct? Yes, So, so totally.
0: We know that from the Mishnah also. The Mishnah tells us the process of taking the bones a year later, putting it in the bone box. And we have about 6,000 recorded uh, bone boxes from that period. It was very common. A lot of people buried their dead, treated their their dead in this manner. Only a few hundreds of them, they cared also to write the name of the deceased. And we already mentioned uh, three of them.
1: Right, right. And then secondly, the the crucified man, the the nail through the heel bone with traces of wood uh, are consistent with crucifixion that was um, talked about at that time. We know that Jesus was crucified. And so these really are incredible discoveries that connect to not just the time of Jesus, but even the circumstances surrounding Jesus death.
0: Yes. It was a special, it wasn't a rare, but it was a special Roman treatment to to kill the person in the most humiliating way, to be nailed naked to a wooden beam in a public place in front of the whole city, to die in a small in a slow and painful death. I mean, what are you dying of? It's 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 a very slow and terribly painful death to to humiliate mm-hmm. the person and or in the case of Jesus to, to humiliate the person that claims to be the king of the Jews or kingdom of heaven or or whatever they wanted to humiliate him for, and and here we have proof that this was really treatment done here. I don't know what was the guilt of this poor Yochanan ben Hagakor, but he did the, end up in the same way.
1: Wow, amazing! I, I just love how these discoveries are are connecting and. You know it's interesting the James Ossuary. I remember when it came to Toronto. I didn't get the opportunity to uh, to get in and see it sadly, but uh, it has been surrounded by so much controversy. And uh, to know that that the uh, the courts have acquitted um, him in terms of of saying that there's no way they can prove that this is a forgery really does. Um, i wasn't i wasn't clear on how that had all how that had all resolved and uh so it's still out there it's still in question and still possible is what you're saying that this could be the uh, yes. the ossuary of james the brother of jesus amazing now i'm I'm a little excited because we're getting to we're getting to number one here we we're, we're talking now about burial boxes and the crucifixion itself but what about location yeah. What about location, connecting to, to Jesus and his crucifixion? Talk to us about this last number and one that item.
0: Is, and that's exactly on the top of my list. Okay, We started with the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and uh, finds that relate in the ideas of John the Baptist. And, and we are we moved on to actual figures, and then the brother, the, maybe the possible bone box of the very brother of Jesus. And on the top of my list would be the actual place of the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. Okay, let's first read the text. The text tells us that the crucifixion was done on a hill called Golgotha, or Golgotha, which means in Aramaic, Skull. Sometimes you will see it labeled as skull. Would you like me to read it? I have it. Uh, The Book of Acts.
1: Yeah, Yeah, go ahead here. Mark 15. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, and they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. And the written notice of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. And they crucified two rebels Mm -hmm. with him, one on his right and one on his left.
0: Exactly. Now in the book of Acts, I believe there's an indication that it was outside the city. Okay, the heel of the crucifixion was apparently uh, next to an entry into the city, so it would be uh, public. But maybe it was done outside the city because Pilatus uh, knew that if there'll be a dead person in the city, it will be very unliked by the public. Okay, because we spoke about the uh, obsession about purity and the impurity of the dead is the lo- is the worst type of impurity. So it was done outside mm-hmm. the city, and then the Gospel of John tells us that after he is dead, they bury him, and the tomb was nearby. We don't know how close, but the fact that the tomb was nearby is very important for what I'm going to uh, say next. Okay? But these are the three or four important marks in the text uh, to locate that site. And in the fourth century, we read about uh, the mother of Constantine, the Constantine the Emperor. His mother is Helena Augusta and she comes for a royal visit in the Holy Land. She starts identifying the holy sites uh, relating to Christianity. And in Jerusalem, she is introduced to a hill and a tomb nearby. Uh, and she verifies, she, uh, she approves that these are the sites of the crucifixion and the burial. And a giant church is built over it, uh, standing there to this day, called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Now, here's the question, Jeff. When Helena comes in the 4th century, it has been 300 years since the events have happened. And in between the year 33 and the year 326, the city was very Roman. Okay. After year 70, there are no Jews in Jerusalem. Later, it even changes its name from Jerusalem to Elia Capitolina, and it's characterized by veterans of the 10th Legion, Romans, Roman pagans. And the last thing that they would care or remember or, or commemorate is where some Jew claiming to be a Messiah uh, was put to death. Okay, and no one has an answer. No one can answer you that question if someone, some family, some group of people remember the exact location. But Helena reaches that spot. And says that this specific spot is the place, and the Church of Holy Sepulchre is standing there to this day. But we can examine that tradition with today. We can examine it with archaeological uh, approach. Okay. Now, the hill of Golgotha, first of all, is a natural hill. It's it's always been there, and even today, it's like a flight higher than the street level. So, 2,000 years ago, it was probably Two flights higher than street level. That's a good place to conduct a public punishment, right? If you put someone to death on a hilltop, the whole city will see it and everyone will be terrified and no one will ever think of not paying its taxes or claiming to be a messiah or king of the, of the Jews. That was the idea and the message goes through. But the tomb, and that's going to be the punchline, the tomb that is... Next to the heel uh, of crucifixion, which according to John should have been next to it, by comparative analysis, I can approve that it is indeed a shape of a tomb typical to the first century. Okay, this is something that right. Helena couldn't do because she didn't take a class in biblical archaeology, she couldn't have done any comparative analysis like we do today. But she hit right. the right spot, she hit a good candidate, she did. Agree that it's a first century tomb, and you could add another argument. I assume you've been into the tomb, Jeff, right? Yes, so maybe you describe it. It's it's a pretty simple space, right? It's got two rooms, and uh, the second inner room has a ledge on the right side. That's right, Am I right? correct. Yes, so. Next time you come, I'll take you to the Kidron Valley and I will show you similar types of tombs where you have a small, usually several rooms, not just one. And you have these ledges where you can put the bodies in. Now, first of all, I believe that it's in the version of Mark where it says that when uh, the Marys entered the tomb on the Sunday, they saw a man sitting on the right side. Which is exactly what you have there, a ledge on the right side. And another right. important argument is that the tomb was a new tomb, right? When Joseph of Arimathea gave the space for that burial, it, the text adds it was a new tomb. The word new implies it was only one burial space at the time. It wasn't used already by several. And if this yeah. still doesn't convince you, Jeff, it also we have another tomb nearby which proves this area was a cemetery. So all the circumstantial evidence again and again supports the tradition that this is the very place. And I believe that there is a, a good level of certainty that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is indeed over the place of the crucifixion, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth by Christian belief.
1: All very, very uh interesting and, and uh, convincing arguments. And I so I, I do go to the text, Matthew 27. You know, it says about the, the tomb and about Joseph of Arimathea. As evening approached, or there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus and going to uh, Pilate. So again, Pilate is uh, part of this story. He asked Jesus for, uh, or he asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate ordered, that it be given to him. He took it, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and he placed it in his own new tomb. The text Mm -hmm. says, as you mentioned, that he had cut out of the rock. Uh, He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. And then John 19 references the fact in verse 41 that at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And so all of those things you mentioned right there in the text, you also referenced uh, outside the, the city walls or outside the gate. Um, there's some other theories about why that would be one. One was that the Romans would want to make an example of these uh, you know, criminals so that others would know not to sort of follow in their footsteps. And, and um, it would it would be on public display so that those passing by would, would be able to see. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 12 actually says, And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. And so exactly. all of those things you referenced, we find here in the New Testament texts, and it's just uh, it's just amazing now when we were filming for miraculous victories of israel um, we interviewed dan bahat about the church of the holy sepulcher and dan also talked to us about uh, this being the the place the location where uh, early christians at least believed the skull of adam was buried i don't know if if you have any insight into that tradition but um, that i think was significant Maybe as well.
0: Yes, that that's a tradition that developed uh, in the Christian world, linking the uh, the the crucifixion site of Jesus with the burial place of Adam, like the, the men that first sinned. Uh, but Dan Bat, I must say, he was the one to write an important article uh, that I was kind of quoting. He was the one to write the article to review the Holy Sepulchre from a pure, clear archaeological point of view and suggest that this could be the place. And I'm saying this because there was an attempt to suggest an alternative called the Garden Tomb. I don't know if you've been there, and it's it's a very nice place, but the archaeology of the Garden Tomb is very problematic. While at the Holy Sepulchre, I find it very convincing.
1: Of course we've been there, we take all of our, our groups there. And and I'm always careful to explain to them when we go that um, we like the Garden Tomb for a number of reasons, but but one of them is is that it's, it's a place where you can get some privacy, where you yeah. can have a little bit of a gathering with your tour group. You can do some significant things like have communion together and have a bit of a service. Um, however, we uh, I have come to understand, uh, even though I think in my early days of going to Israel, I would have been, uh, I would have been sort of taught or coached to believe that the Garden Tomb was possibly a, a place where Jesus could have been buried and, and risen again. However, um, having studied the archaeology and uh, chatted with people like like Danny and yourself and others. Um, yeah. I've come to understand that there is a, a much more solid archaeological case for the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre and the the tomb there being the place where Jesus was both Indeed. crucified and buried and rose again. Now, I, I say that I like the other site better because it's quiet and it's nice and it's pretty and it's so, not like jammed with people and... You know, the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, they've built these massive structures over top of where these archaeological finds were. And yes. so it, it takes away a little bit from the, from the um, uh, what's the word? It takes a lot. I'll admit, it
0: takes a lot. And there's also political the intrigues between the different denominations. It's, yeah. uh, I would even say it's a bit sad uh, of, of what sad. became of the site. The garden tomb does deliver much better the, the spiritual feeling of, of visiting the place that relates to his crucifixion, death and resurrection.
1: Yeah. Now, is there any evidence, any archaeological evidence for a garden at the Church of the Holy yes. Sepulchre site?
0: Yes. Uh, I don't know if you ever chatted with Gabi Barcai. Is the name familiar? Gabi Not personal. I know the okay. name,
1: but I don't think I've met him.
0: So next time you come, uh, maybe even in May, uh, if God permits, uh, God willing, as you say, uh, yes. we, sh- we should put him in front of the camera. He not only wrote important articles exactly about these topics, he actually excavated in the 1970s, uh, both inside the Holy Sepulchre and in a nearby vis- site, And he did find evidence maybe of the wall of the city. We still haven't found clear evidence of the wall of the city because the holy sepulchre should be outside the city walls. But he also found evidence of brown, a layer of brown soil which could have been attributed to a garden. So Uh yes, it seems that we have evidence to a garden too.
1: Very good. Well, this has been amazing. I I love that the uh, you know the end of our discussion. Of course, as a Christian, I love this. I love that it it ends at an empty tomb, because uh, you know it speaks to Christian believers of the fact that that Jesus is no longer there. Um, you know, I not don't wish to debate this. I don't suppose, but but to my knowledge, there's been never any archeological discovery of any of the remains of Jesus that anyone anyone could know. Uh, and, you know, we believe that's because he's not there. He's he's risen. And so, he has uh, risen. You know, s-
0: is what a lot of Greek pilgrims all shout in front of the empty tent. Kyriasaneste, the Lord has risen. He has risen.
1: Yes. Yes. Amen. 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 Well, I, I just think that's so incredible. And, uh, you know, the text in Matthew 28, uh, I never get tired of reading this easter's coming up uh, fairly soon and uh, passover just in a week or so a little over a week i guess and so uh, it's it's always great to be reminded of this if you're a christian and you're listening matthew 28 says after the sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week mary magdalene and the other mary went to look at the tomb there's mary magdalene who we talked about earlier uh, when we connected jesus to that first century synagogue in magdala Come and see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell the disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see him. Now I have told you and um, I just appreciate so much uh, the conversation that we've been able to have and uh, you know how from an archaeological perspective, uh, you as an Israeli Jew, can can help us make the connection to to some of the proofs that what the New Testament shares could be could be true. Right. So thank you so much for science. I'm using a
0: scientific field called archaeology. It's not some, you know, folklore or tradition. This is hard evidence. Exactly.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Well, listen, it's uh, it's just been a great to have you and uh, crazy that your top 10 archaeological discoveries begin with, you know, John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus out in the wilderness and moving chronicologically all the way through all of those lists that we uh, that we talked about those items. And, um, you know, the, the story of Jesus as it's recorded in the Bible is just such an amazing and powerful story. But when we can connect it to actual archaeological finds and artifacts and inscriptions, as you have been able to sort of bear out for us, uh, then it just makes it that much more alive and more real. So thank you so much for taking the time with us today, Danny. Thank you. um, It's been a pleasure and an honor
0: to be on your show.
1: Well, we really appreciate it. And what I want to say is, uh, I hope that the next time we talk, uh, it can be together uh, over uh, Makluba, over Makluba, maybe or uh, some okay. other meal or some in, good hummus. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, Amen. exactly, exactly. What's the saying? It's it's next year in Jerusalem. So, hopefully um, sooner than hopefully next Hopefully this year.
0: year. Hopefully this year in Jerusalem. Amen. Exactly. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you, Thanks, Danny.
1: God bless. Okay. Bye bye. Well, thank you for tuning in to Keeping It Israel today. I hope that you enjoyed the show. And uh, our guest, Danny the Digger, was so engaging. If you want to find out more about him, you can go to his website, DannyTheDigger.com, and we would encourage you to uh, check that out. First Century Foundations is a ministry that exists to support the land and the people of Israel and to educate Christians about the Jewish roots of our faith. We are a charity that relies on your generous donations. And so if you like the show, if you like keeping it Israel, then please consider giving. You can also visit firstcenturyfoundations.com to learn about the many humanitarian projects that we support in Israel, and to find out how you can be a critical part of the work that we do. Thank you for your giving. Your generosity is making a huge difference in so many lives in Israel today, and please Don't forget to hit the subscribe button on First Century Foundation's YouTube channel or like us on Facebook so that you can stay connected to us and to our ministry. We also ask if you're listening to this podcast on one of your favorite podcasting platforms that you would subscribe to the podcast there as well. All of these things help us. And uh, if you went and left a review, that would even be so much better. Hey, the land and the people of Israel they have a special place in God's heart and a critical role in history more than ever before. We want you to remember, as Christians, we stand with Israel.